cowboy. What has happened to your hair? Uh, um, I, I had it done. Uh, Clint Eastwood style. <laughs> you see outlaw Yossi Vales? <laughs> what a flick. Hello and welcome to Best Forgotten Movies, a podcast all about the films that time has forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my co-host Andrew Phillips. This week I'll be mostly listening to XTC. <laughs> and in today's episode we're turning our microscopes towards Joe Dante's shrinking band action adventure film Inner Space. Test pilot Tuck Pendleton wants to make history. Supermarket clerk Jack Putter needs a vacation. Sir, I'm sorry, Jack, you're late. That's not good. You know it's coupon day. Lieutenant Pendleton is about to be miniaturized, placed into this needle, and then injected into this rabbit. Rock and roll. But something went wrong, and Tuck's about to get a new destination. Inside Jack Putter. I'm in a man. Hello, can you hear me? I'm possessed! Now, Jack's got twice the problems. How you doing, Jack? But he's double the man. With Tuck on his side. Can you more cows? In his gut. <laughs> and on his case. You're not gonna back groceries all your life, are you, Jack? And only 24 hours left for Jack to get out of danger. So that Tuck can get out of Jack. <laughs> Dennis Quaid, Martin Short. Give yourself a shot of adventure. Inner Space. 1987's Inner Space follows Martin Short on his quest to discover just who the hell is this guy inside me. Dennis Quaid plays Lieutenant Tuck Pendleton, a miniaturized marine who finds himself injected inside the body of Jack Putter, a hapless store clerk, after a secret experiment is sabotaged. Tuck and Jack find they must work together so one can survive the brutal landscape of the human body and the other can outwit the criminals on his tail. Meg Ryan co-stars with Joe Dante regulars Kevin McCarthy and Robert Picardo. So as always, I have to ask Andy, have you ever seen Inner Space before now? Yeah, I think this is the fourth time I've seen this film. The first time I watched it was about three years ago. Mm. I had heard about it in the past, mainly due to Industrial Light and Magic books I'd read. And I, I, I watched it on DVD and really loved it. For me personally, Inner Space has always been a um, staple of my childhood, as most Joe Dante films are. All except The Explorers, in fact. I've, I've not actually ever seen that film. Watching it again now, it's not been too long since I last watched it, maybe only two years, Mm -hmm. and I was struck by how well-layered the film is in terms of the comedy and the gags. I was still picking up jokes that I'd never picked up before in the film. It's so densely packed, you might say. So yeah, I am quite familiar with Inner Space, and I was really looking forward to doing this episode because of it. I, I do really want to look into why this film has been forgotten because after all the times that I've watched it I am still no closer to understanding why it has been forgotten. I couldn't quite believe it either because when the first time I saw this film it is gave me that reaction of like why have I never seen this film before? 
Yeah. It's so good. And it's it really deserves a place within that pantheon of 80s action comedies, which I feel it's really been overlooked in that area because it is up there with Back to the Futures and You're Romancing the Stones and Your Who Frame, Roger Rabbits. It's in that kind of area. And when looking at the films that it was released around, few years later you've got Honey I Shrunk the Kids as well and that's a film that people seem to cling on to as being a nostalgia classic in the same vein as like The Goonies yeah and yeah. yet in a space predates that film in terms of a shrinking man comedy and it just has no love for it no and I think Honey I Shrunk the Kids writing wise and even technically is, mm. is nowhere near as good as In a Space no I have to agree as well so, you've been looking into the background of this film in regards to when it was released. So, I'm handing it over to you, Andy, to give us some context as to really the production history of this film before we really get into the meat and veg of what it's actually about. Unusually for this film, there's not much that you can dig out about the actual production history. Most of what I got was from the commentary. I actually watched this film twice this week. So, I watched it normally to take notes on the film itself. And then I watched it again yesterday with the commentary on, which I have to add is a very good commentary. It does feature Dante, the producer, and several of the actors, as well as Dennis Murin, the visual effects supervisor. So it is a very good commentary if you do pick it up on DVD. It's one of those scripts that I think was written by an up-and-coming writer and then was taken over by a more established writer. So I think the original script was by a guy called Chip Proza. And then I think it was rewritten by Jeffrey Baum, who ended up being on set as well. He actually hired Jeffrey Baum as an actor. He makes a brief cameo in the first sequence, just so Joe Dante could actually have him on the set. It's the same technique that they used for Predator with Shane Black. Yeah. And the central conceit of this film, from Joe Dante's perspective, was to emulate classic Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis films. And the central conceit is... What if Dean Martin was inside Jerry Lewis? And it went around a couple of directors. I know John Carpenter was at one time interested in making the film, but I think passed on it for whatever reason. So yeah, there's not much on the production history. This film was made by Amblin Productions, and it was executive produced by Steven Spielberg, who actually made quite a few good suggestions on his part. One of his main suggestions was Dennis Quaid as the leading role because it was originally written for a much older person. And Dennis Quaid was actually the second choice. It was Steven Spielberg's choice, but Joe Dante actually wanted Mel Gibson for the role. Yeah. Which I'm really glad it went to Dennis Quaid. He's just got that really lovable, likeable charm about him. Whereas Mel Gibson at the time was doing his Mad Mel thing with Riggs, and I don't think that would have mashed as well. I think the main reason Spielberg suggested Quaid is that you could see that he had that kind of more lived-in quality, and even a Dean Martin-esque vibe to him. Yeah, because despite being a complete and utter down-and-out drunk, he's still got that twinkle in his eye that really charms you. Yeah, because I think in someone else's hands, the character could be seen as being a bit of an arsehole, but in his hands, makes him very endearing. It's strange that these two main characters, both Martin Shaw and Dennis Quaid, on paper, they should be quite unlikable, considering one of them's quite an arsehole and the other one's so neurotic that he should mm. become annoying, and yet both actors give them so much heart and character that they have all these little quirks about them that just make them so lovable. Yeah, and they have such great chemistry as well yeah, together. Yeah, that's really important. And this is something I'll go in from the off, because this is another part of the production that provides quite a lot of insight as to how well the chemistry works. So in terms of them making the film, all of these scenes with Dennis Quaid out of the pod and all of the scenes involving Martin Short were filmed first. 
and all the scenes with Dennis Quaid in the pod were actually filmed up at ILM in the last two weeks of production. So they block filmed all those sections afterwards. And they did a couple of things to integrate the pod sequences with the rest of the shoot. The two main things they had were a head cam, which Martin Short wore in order to get the video monitor sequences on the pod where you can see everything through Martin Short's yeah. perspective. So what they had to do was film all the scenes and then film another pass again with Martin Short or even another actor at some times with that head cam on just to get the coverage of what the actor was seeing during that sequence. The other thing was in order to get the dialogue flowing correctly and the chemistry which they had together present within the actual main shoot, they had a very small earpiece inserted in Martin Short's ear, which the camera couldn't pick up. Yeah. And Dennis Quaid actually read his lines and interacted with Martin Short off screen. And depending on which take they used, they used all that as reference when they came to shoot Dennis Quaid's parts in the pod so everything would match up together because they had all that reference there yeah it's really a testament to the actors abilities that they have such chemistry despite barely ever sharing the screen and joe dante's obviously put a lot of work into capturing that chemistry despite that fact yeah because in all intents and purposes even though they hardly meet or share any screen time together it is a buddy comedy yeah it does have that buddy co- or oh, body comedy yeah oh. it's a buddy body comedy <laughs> So now we've talked about when the film was made and how it was made, but I really think it's time that we get into the story and deconstruct it to get to the bottom of whether or not this is a best forgotten movie or best of the forgotten. Yeah, I really feel this film has a lot in common with Big Trouble in Little China in the fact that it really deconstructs the all-American hero. Right from the very first sequence, it uh, has the main character of Quaid coming in and deconstructing that all-American hero within the context of the scene, but also in himself, because later on in the film, he is incapacitated, and it's up to Martin Short's character to be that hero and step up to the plate, even though on paper he doesn't fit the bill. Yeah, it's literally down to him to find the man he is on the inside, and they give each other a little bit that makes them better people. They both have something to teach one another. And I do like how the film starts with a lineup of potential leading men. And they're all straight-faced macho men with this monologue going on in the background about what it means to truly be a hero. And then Dennis Quaid just fumbles into the room, drunk as a skunk, and gives this drunken speech about what it is to be a hero that's completely in contrast with what we've just heard. Straight from the off, we're being told, this guy isn't a hero. And yet we like him. We like him straight from then. Yeah, and he's also debunking all these myths about what a hero should be. It really tears apart the whole idea that heroes should be these butch, muscle-bound, masculine guys, and that actually that is a path to destruction, to self-destruction, as it has been for Dennis Quaid's character, Tuck Pendleton. Tuck Pendleton, we're not really given that much of a background on him. He's a very mysterious character in that sense. We find out that he's still riding the coattails of some great heroism that he accomplished, serving the military, but... We never really find out what that is. And we find out that he's far outstayed as welcome. And obviously in this scene we are introduced to Meg Ryan's character, whose name eludes me at this point. Lydia. Lydia. Oh, I should remember that. It's a great name. Lydia. (laughs) She's his girlfriend and she plays a journalist character. And this was one of her very first big roles. 
they were going to cast people from soap operas. This was the idea. I think Spielberg had the idea of casting people from soap operas because it worked quite well for him in the past. But um, they saw Meg Ryan playing the girlfriend of Anthony Edwards' character in Top Gun and liked her from that. And uh, the aforementioned writer Jeffrey Baum does feature in the scene. He's the man with the beard that she's talking to. We cut across to Tuck's apartment now. And this really does feel like... Uh, leftovers from doc brown's lab it does there's all these gadgets that are just designed to for instance pour him a drink i'd say that's one thing that doesn't really come into play later but it still it's a quite nice touch i know joe dante likes to play with his gadgets anyway it is just that it's a very well-dressed set but not all of it brings any context to the character it's not particularly relevant but it's still quite a nice set it just adds to the charm of the set i guess yeah it comes into play i suppose in the context of the vectorscope lab later on yeah i'd imagine they're things that he's nicked from the lab oh i know i've <laughs> Maybe never something thought about like that. it like that but no that, yeah. he does strike me as the kind of character that would you'd like i'll nick this piece of high-tech equipment to make it pour me a drink at home and then almost immediately and very briefly in this film for a joe dante film we have our dick miller cameo yeah yeah it's, it's almost too brief i wish he hung about a little bit longer yeah yeah he has a very brief role as a taxi driver in this one and he's escorting meg ryan's character the following morning as she's about to leave Tuck yeah, for, uh, for good this time. Yeah, for reasons we don't know. She's just she's just got fed up with him. Well, I've always thought this as... I know this is a development later in the film that we found out she's in fact pregnant. But I always saw it as that night she's discovered that she is in fact pregnant and decided that that's why she's adding off. Because mm. I know Tuck says in that scene that this is a routine for them and that she always comes back she always nurses him back to health before he goes on another self-destructive rampage but something's clearly changed this time that she knows that she can't continue down this path with him i do like this scene quite a lot because it even more so makes the character of tuck more endearing to the audience he's uh, a little goofy and i like the way he interacts with the taxi you know what i also like about the scene and my wife said the same is yeah. that it gives the female audience a little bit of eye candy yeah i do have to say that dennis quaid does have a fabulous ass in this it's scene a, it is a nice bottom <laughs> it really is a nice bottom i can't believe i just said that but it has to be said it does yeah it, i'm it, a little no. bit jealous yeah I, I am you know what I, I don't care he has a fantastic ass and uh fair game to him for showing it off to the world moving quickly on yeah moving very swiftly before on, we, we all uh, disappear inside dennis quaid's arsehole <laughs> <laughs> which i'd imagine a certain proportion of the audience may like to do yeah. <laughs> maybe that's uh, another inner space yeah. that we could explore yeah <laughs> <laughs> we zip to silicon valley and to the character of jack played by martin short the character of jack putter who is a extreme hypochondriac. Yeah, and this is in his first leading role as well for yeah. Martin Short after The Three Amigos. In a way, uh, Martin Short is the lead of this film because after the first 20 minutes or so, Dennis Quaid is incapacitated by being inside the pod and doesn't emerge again until the last 10 minutes of the film. So really, Martin Short carries this film. Yeah, and for a lot of it, he's playing the straight man yeah. as well, which considering Martin Short, who's really solid when it comes to slapstick humour, you would think it would hamper him, but actually he really makes the most of it, and he really imbues the character with some humour and quirks that really make him endearing. And I think it's actually an approach that really helps for Martin Short himself, because in other roles he's 
often known for being very outrageous and very wild. And the context of the character and how he has to play it kind of restrains him a little bit. And I think that's to his advantage in this film. Yeah, it really is. Often he's far from the wackiest character in the frame. Mm. And yet he still manages to come across as the most dominant comedic force on the screen. And we do get a nice little setup for the supermarket nightmare scene, which comes a little bit later. Oh, yeah. So it does. Yeah. Where everything goes wrong. And during this scene, the Doctor recommends that he goes and gets some uh, rest and relaxation. We get an idea of who Jack is by his neurosis. And later on, we see how he kind of fits in the world when we see him at work as just a lowly cashier. And obviously, his nightmare has to come into play as well as it actually starts to begin happening around him. And we enter the haphazard, underfunded realm of Vectorscope. Yeah, and despite the fact that they're supposed to be at the heart of this state-of-the-art technology, everything looks so low-tech. And also, to get the authentic vibe, most of the extras in the scene are not actors. They are actually scientists from the Jet Propulsion Lab in LA. Including the Doctor himself. Not including the Doctor. The Doctor is played by John Hora, who was originally Joe Dante's cinematographer up until this film. And it was Steven Spielberg's idea that Mm. he should audition for the role. Yeah, there was no falling out between Dante and John Hora's part. They just wanted a different look for this film. So they hired Andrew Laszlo. And then when it came to casting this role, and they said, we want somebody like John Hora. And Spielberg said, why not cast John Hora? Just get him in, get him to audition. And that's how he's in the film. And I remember hearing that actually Joe Dante was originally against the idea Mm. and asked him to audition for it. And after seeing him in that first audition, just immediately cast him. And I feel that this is the character that's treated the worst by the filmmakers. It may be because it's a friend who's playing it, but I feel he doesn't really get a great send-off. It might be that Bruce Campbell thing coming into play, like the way that Sam Raimi ropes him into any kind of cameo and just tortures him. And we see Tuck enter the pod, which is inside this very large chamber. And this demonstrates his all-American hero tropes. He uh, kisses the girl before he gets in the pod. Yeah. And there's very heroic music from Jerry Goldsmith, almost in satire of the situation because it's not a very heroic setup that they've got, but it's trying to treat it like it's a big astronaut Apollo 13 style. Yeah, in his head, he's doing the Michael Bay slow motion walk. The plan is to inject the pod piloted by Dennis Quaid into a lab rabbit and everything's been geared up to exploring the inner workings of this rabbit. And obviously things do not go to plan. In a very die-hard way, some criminals decide they're going to sabotage the experiment. They pose as telecommunications workers and pretty much knock everyone out with their gas. There's a great gag in this scene as well that I absolutely love, where they approach the man at the reception Mm. desk and say, we're here to fix the telephones. And the guy picks up his phone and says, is there anything wrong with the telephones? (laughs) (laughs) And the guy on the other end says, no. (laughs) (laughs) And just before this, we examine the context of how this miniaturization works we have the idea that there is two cog shaped chips one in normal space and one in inner space which is attached to the pod and we have this very elaborate robot arm that attaches the second chip to the pod in a ridiculously elaborate way almost like laughably yeah it moves its arm everywhere but where it has to go and this really sets up the chip as a MacGuffin for the film. It's one of those devices that people are after. Yeah, and it doesn't really matter much. It's just something that gets the story going. 
So everybody in the facility is knocked out by this rival organisation as they storm the base. And they are led by Fiona Lewis as Dr. Margaret Kanker. I love the way that she's revealed as well. We first see her, she's wearing a helmet and a gas mask. And then she takes it off in a great edit. And the moment they're removed from her face, she's got this massive hairdo. Yeah. (laughs) Beautiful model-esque look. Long flowing hair. Yeah. yeah. I really do love these cartoon quirks that are just littered throughout Joe Dante's films. Once the pod has been miniaturised, it gets loaded into a large syringe, which is designed to be injected into the rabbit at a later date. Yeah. But this never happens because they're infiltrated beforehand. So Ozzy decides to escape with the syringe, and he's pursued by Dr. Kanker's assistant, Mr. Igo. Mr. Igo. Played by Vernon Wells. Who is essentially this film's Terminator. The primary inspiration for vernon wells portrayal of the character is from watching the terminator he wanted to make it very much like that that even down to having sort of rubbery skin and his robotic arm as well prosthetic that is very terminator-esque as a child i always thought that he was a robot and they really play up that fact within this film that he could be a robot that's been designed by this doctor although that doesn't really pay off in any way no no and they reveal that that's not the case later on in the film but for all intents and purposes When we see him, we immediately do think of the Terminator. Mm. So begins a rather elaborate car slash bike chase that's quite reminiscent to the chase in Terminator 2 and shares a few locations as well. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, Terminator 2 meets E.T. Yes, it, <laughs> I think it has that it, kind it of ha- E.T. vibe of the kids on the bicycle. It is. It's James Cameron through way of Steven Spielberg. And they end up in a mall. Exactly. And <laughs> it is literally the Galleria. There's a couple of Gallerias that they used in this film, and all of them were destroyed by earthquakes later on. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm not sure is a great omen for the film. No. <laughs> <laughs> So this is where the film gets its first taste of darkness, really, mm. is when this chase comes to a head. So Ozzy escapes to a, the Galleria Mall. And while in there, he's actually shot by Mr. Igo. And this is the first indication of him having some sort of... Something with his hand. There's a slight close-up to his gloved arm the very first time you see Mr. Igo, but nothing's made of it. And we've (laughs) seen him point at Ozzy a few times. Yeah. And we don't know if it was just an intimidation tactic, and it actually comes into play that there's actually a gun hidden in his finger. There is a visual gag much earlier on in the film. The very first time you see Igo's car, it has the number plate Snap-on. Yeah. Which... (laughs) Which it makes much more sense later on when it you do realise he has detachable hands that you can change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can put a whole manner of uh, appendages on the end of it. And whilst this is going on, the character of Jack Putter is booking a holiday in the travel agents for a cruise. There's a really nice line about the travel agent. He's saying, would you be interested in having a shipboard romance? And he said, as long as it's not too exciting. Yeah. <laughs> So there's some really nice humour in that scene, and it's intercut with this frenetic chase. So at the end of the scene, Ozzy is shot and presumably dies. They don't really go into that part. I'd imagine he does, though. He does black out, and we never see him again, Mm. which leads us to believe that he has either died or is in a coma somewhere off screen. Yeah. I guess in the movie language, he dies. And just before doing so, the pod is injected into Jack Putter's ass. Yes, Dennis Quaid is thrust straight into (laughs) Martin Short's ass. Yeah, and this is where I want to go into the um, the tonal parts of the film. I think, for me, the only real major fault with the film is a slight tonal inconsistency, which you do get with some Joe Dante films. I think he gets so wrapped up with everything that sometimes he loses sight of the overall 
tone of the film. It's because he loses himself in the wacky comedy aspects of it time after time. Yeah. And when it comes to the serious stuff, it really stands out next to it. It suddenly feels like there's been a big shift. But I do like those aspects of Joe Dante films that they do have a slight darkness to them yeah. at times. Gremlins, again, is yeah. exactly well, the same. Well, I think that's the thing. I think... <laughs> Maybe that's why he's not been making so many major studio films. He doesn't really fit into their idiom. From a marketer's point of view, his films are probably a nightmare because they do tread that very fine line between being an adult film and being a family film and really being neither. Like Gremlins has a lot of tonal features of being a family film and then at other aspects is a really adult film, very gory. Yeah. And I think this is maybe why Joe Dante isn't really a mainstream director anymore. Which is a shame because as, is, a, yeah. as a kid, those were the elements that I really liked. I always felt like I was getting away with something when it came to those moments of darkness yeah. in Joe Dante films. Like, oh, I shouldn't be watching this, but I am. Yeah. And there's something to be said that those films that scare you as a child often become the films that you love when you grow up. And those films yeah. that unsettle you in those small moments, they're the ones that stick in your mind. Ozzy blacks out and I go steals a gentleman's camera which has a picture of Jack on it. So that comes into play later on when they find wherever this syringe has gone. And then it comes to one of my favourite bits. And it's actually one of the director's favourite bits where Mr. Igo pops a clown's balloon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just as he's leaving, there's a clown with a big sad face and a balloon in his hand. And he just takes the syringe and pops it, just walking away. And he gives a wry smile as he's leaving. Yeah. Which... I do like because it's those moments of emotion do separate him from being a strictly Terminator character. So now it pretty much becomes Jack Putter's film. Yeah, and we also get our first look at Mr. Short's internals, which yes, is it's, it's, it's uh, credited. In, no, Mr. Short's interiors. And these were created by Industrial Light and Magic, and the effects supervisor was Dennis Murin, who's probably one of the most famous players in that company yeah and incidentally these effects won an academy award and it's the only joe dante film that's actually ever won an academy award as well but yeah dennis murin who many may know from star wars yes star wars jurassic park he was the pioneer of cgi animation and it's quite interesting hearing him talk about the effects on uh, the commentary because he said there's a lot of jello they said, that's jello, that's jello in water, that's jello. <laughs> uh, so, the main combination of these effects is the models immersed in water with something called diamond dust, which gave the water a very sparkly effect and shot at sometimes very low speeds. They do look fantastic, though. And we cut back to Martin Short as he enters his job in the supermarket. And this is where his dream comes back into play, as everything goes wrong for him. This little red-haired old woman who is actually another cameo. The actress who played this woman was a regular in the Jerry Lewis Dean Martin film, so she's another in reference to this kind of style of film. And in the background, we've got Jones. Chuck Jones, <laughs> yeah. Which absolutely ties into Joe Dante's love of Looney Tunes once more. And he even gets a line. It makes me wonder why it took so long for Warner Brothers to get round to giving Joe Dante a Looney Tunes film to make. And although he isn't very happy with back in action, I've read that he does wish that he was given more creative control. And oh my God, who doesn't give Joe Dante creative control mm. over a Looney Tunes film? But I still do like that film. It still has plenty of Joe Dante moments, even if it's not quite deserving of his input. During this sequence, we're introduced to two other characters. 
His manager, Mr. Wormwood, who's incredibly creepy and played very well by Henry Gibson, who is another Joe Dante regular. Yeah, and he was later seen in The Burbs with Tom Hanks. And uh, I think I recognised him mainly from uh, Magnolia, where he's playing the creepy person at the bar who William H. Macy interacts with for quite a large proportion of his scenes in the film. Yeah, I think many of the listeners will know him strictly from Blues Brothers, mm. where he plays the Nazi bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> the leader of the Nazi party. Yeah, the Nancy party. <laughs> I had a thing at uni where somebody just couldn't say Nazi, they just said Nancy. <laughs> and they just... <laughs> the Nancy party. The Nancy party. Heil Hitler! <laughs> oh, they made me that. Heil! <laughs> Oh dear. And we also get introduced to Wendy. Wendy Shell, is it? The character is actually written for her specifically, which is why she's called Wendy. And she is also a Joe Dante regular as well. Yeah, she had done an episode of Amazing Stories, which Joe Dante had directed, and he cast her based on that. And many of our listeners may know her as the voice of Francine in American Dad, which is what she's up to now. And yeah, this is where his nightmare plays out. And it's caused G2 Tuck repowering his pod. The electromagnetic impulses of his pod caused the barcode scanner to scan the products at a... Incredibly inflated prices. Yeah. Like shampoo going through it, 18 grand. (laughs) And the thing that makes me laugh is that no one finds this weird. No. They're just going, what have you done, Jack? I love that they blame Jack. (laughs) Like, he's doing nothing but scanning it through it. And everybody's like, what are you doing? It really messed it up this time, Jack. We've also got another high-profile cameo in this scene that you may not know. It's Jack full of them. There is Ron Howard's dad in this scene as well. What? Ron Howard's dad is in this scene. <laughs> who, who is and you'll see him. He looks so much like Ron Howard. Oh, I'll have to go back and watch it. <laughs> so, um... Martin Short gets into a complete tizzy over this ridiculous scene. Yeah, he starts hyperventilating yeah. in a very elaborate way. <laughs> yeah. The gun gets pulled out, but it's a lighter. This is a trope that gets reused time and time again in this whole yeah. idea of a gun as a lighter. It's a punchline to the joke that his dream sets up, really. And so Tuck realises that he's not where he should be. And we see the first of many incisions into Jack's body as his pod travels through his system. Yes, uh, causing untold amounts of damage. Yeah, <laughs> just seems to like <laughs> rupture his veins yeah. and all sorts of things <laughs> as he goes through. As Jack is cooling down in the staff room, Tuck decides to find out what he can see and latches a sensor onto Jack's optic nerve which causes Jack to seethe in pain. It's like the eye of a needle has gone through his eye. And everyone just thinks he's crazy. Yeah, everybody thinks he's having a nervous breakdown. Following this scene, Jack gets sent home. And at the same time, Dr. Kanker, she finds out that this is the man that Tuck's pod has been injected into. So this sets off the whole rest of the film, really, the chase element of the film. Jack visits the doctors again. And it's during this scene that Tuck places another implant within Jack's ear so he can hear what's going on and also talk to Jack. And this is where he starts thinking he's hearing voices. Yeah, finally they can communicate and Jack agrees with everybody else that, no, he is in fact having a nervous breakdown. (laughs) And this is really where the whole buddy element of the film begins. Yes. And there's this great scene where Martin Short is sandwiched between two people in a doctor's waiting room. And he can hear this man talking to him in his head, this mm. voice in his head. And he begins talking to it and the two people next to him think he's... Talk- Is that perfect comedy set up where there's this two separate dialogues going on at once? And Jack thinks he's possessed and uh, I think his doctor almost believes it too. He thinks he's got some sort of demonic possession or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's... <laughs> 
And once more, really, the Doctor gives him the only advice that he gives him throughout the film, which is go home and rest. And that's exactly what he does. This Doctor's getting paid how much just to tell him, just go home and rest, go on oh, a holiday. Such a fraud. It really su- is. Such a fraud. Tuck and Jack really start to interact once he's gotten home. Tuck almost has to convince Jack that he is real and inside him. But via the use of the EMP, which blows up his video. Yeah. <laughs> it's then Jack starts to realise that it's not just a voice in his head, it's literally a man living inside him at this moment in time. And these scenes were shot very sporadically across the whole shoot in San Francisco. This apparently was a cover set. This is the set that they would go to whenever it started raining, which it regularly mm. does in San Francisco. It's a testament that it feels so seamless when literally this is what they used to do when they couldn't shoot outside so not only are the actors unable to act against each other Mm. but these scenes are shot in a sporadic nature how are the performances as good as they are and as funny as they are it's incredible and then we get a courier coming to the flat and he's not all what he seems he is actually a henchman from the bad guys yeah tuck quickly figures him out even if jack does not he just calls it a hunch at the time and there is a tussle involving a gun And this is really the start of Jack's transformation into being an action hero. Yeah, Jack actually wins, surprisingly. And with the gun in hand, he knocks out the henchman. And I do love that instantly he drops the gun and Mm. runs away. It just goes to illustrate just how little of an action hero this guy truly is. And yet he does become somebody that chases adventure. Jack runs away, escaping both the courier and Mr. Igo. And due to his heart rate increasing exponentially, Tuck almost gets sucked into his heart. Now, this is actually a scene that was inserted after the film was shot. This was another Steven Spielberg suggestion. Oh, it's, it's a brilliant scene as well. I absolutely love this sequence. They planned the film and discovered they'd save some money. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they wanted more effects in the film so Spielberg suggested that this would be a good place to put a large effects set piece into yeah and it does look great this is one of my favourite parts of the film in fact watching the scene again knowing that it's actually tacked on because it is actually very self-contained you could actually cut straight from Jack leaving his apartment to the next scene and not actually have it there it's one of those scenes that feels integral to the film but actually was mm. surgically inserted into the middle of it I've never noticed it before yeah. I imagine I will do when I yeah. watch it back this is another testament to how good these effects are Roger Ebert when he reviewed the film was adamant that this was all medical footage that they'd used and it wasn't until afterwards that Dennis Murin was able to talk to Roger Ebert and say no this is all just big sets I completely understand where Roger Ebert's coming from, though, because of the quality of the work. Nowadays, if it was made now, it would have such an over-reliance in CGI, you would be able to tell that it's not real straight from the off. Meanwhile, Jack gets to the Vectorscope lab and explains himself to the other scientists that remain there. So this is where the exposition for the rest of the film takes place. This is where we really get a handle on what the microchips are, what they do, and why this other company are after them, and also how Tuck Pendleton is stuck inside Jack Putter now because the other chip is missing. So it almost makes Jack Putter and Tuck Pendleton the pursuers who are being pursued, which is a nice little twist on it. They're trying to get close to the very people that are trying to capture them. Yeah. So after everything is laid out for our main characters and they discover that they can't just sit about and wait for things to happen for them, they have to make them happen for themselves. Yeah, they decide to take everything into their own hands. And they actually start trying to track down where this other microchip has gone. 
and they escape Vectorscope. They didn't really escape, they just sneak out. And this is another part of the transformation for Jack. He gets the cool car, which is Tuck's car. So he slowly transforms into Tuck within the context of the rest of the film. He gets his clothes, he gets his car, kind of gets his girl. But nothing quite fits. It no. doesn't feel right for no. him because... I think the point that the film's also trying to make is to be Tuck is to be a self-destructive individual. Yeah. And that it's not best for Jack Putter to be Tuck. It's to be himself, but a better version of himself. Yeah. And they drive to Tuck's apartment. This whole next five minutes of the film wasn't in the film. It was in the original script, but they took it out due to timing reasons. And then when they edited the film together, realized that they needed the scene. Because they needed the characters to bond. Yeah. So they actually reshot this after they'd done previews. And they had to rebuild the whole set. Really? Mm-hmm, from scratch. The set had been torn down. They had to rebuild the whole set, get everyone back, and reshoot this little section of the film. It goes to show that these days, when anybody ever hears reshoots, they instantly think that film is in trouble. Whereas, actually, if you look back at the history of, well, film, reshoots allow you to... Just nudge the film in the right direction. So just fill in those gaps that you've noticed in the edit. And actually, most of the time, 90% of the time at least, films are made stronger by reshoots, not destroyed by them. Okay, you get the odd film like World War Z where they have to go out and reshoot an entire act of the film. Mm. Something's clearly gone wrong. But when you're doing these connective tissue moments, they make the film stronger. Yeah, they have a drink to calm their nerves and then they start dancing. Yeah, it's really there just to alleviate some of the tension that's built up over the preceding half an hour. And this is also the first time that Tuck gets to see what Jack looks like. It's weird to think of this film without that scene, because it wouldn't work without that scene. It is actually an integral part of the film in terms of their relationship. And so we cut back to Meg Ryan, who's been absent from the film for quite some time. It needs for that story to come back into play. Because at this point, you start to ask, where's she gone? She's actually investigating... The cowboy. Well, she's investigating the cowboy, but she's investigating the whole Silicon Valley crime element in terms of bits of technology being stolen by other companies. It still makes the film relevant in that sense, because I'd imagine technology, blueprints and ideas get stolen all the time from different companies. corporations are constantly trying to undercut each other. And this is an interesting thing. We get introduced to the cowboy and listen to the commentary... It's almost like last week when we were talking about terrorists not being funny anymore. They were talking about this character in the sense that they might have done this character slightly differently if they made the film today. Yeah. Because this essentially is another funny terrorist. He's not really a terrorist in terms of being a foot soldier, but he is there to sell technology to the highest bidder. Yeah, he's essentially an arms dealer because what they want to use this chip for is for weaponry. The way that this character is played by the great Robert Picardo, who we'll mention in a minute. (laughs) It makes you forget all that. He's a very goofy character, and he has so much more to him than just that. He's not a a two-dimensional character in any sense. And once more, he's a great play on what it is to be the masculine action hero. Because he is supposed to be that cowboy, that Clint Eastwood type. (laughs) And he's played in such an outrageous manner that you just can't help but point and laugh at him. The cowboy is played by Robert Picardo, who most people will probably know as being the hologrammatic doctor in Star Trek Voyager. But at this point in his career, he was a Joe Dante regular and also he was a Rob Bottin regular as well he was rob Bottin's go-to guy yeah 
you see him in Legend as well as the Swamp Witch. Meg Mucklebones. Yes. He's hidden under so much prosthetic that you can't really tell it's him, but the performance is yeah. outstanding. And he turns up in another couple of Dante films. The one I can remember the most is probably Small Soldiers. And he's also known as one of the only characters that you're led to believe has shagged a gremlin. Yeah. At the end of Gremlins 2. He is essentially <laughs> raped by a gremlin. Yeah. Well, it starts off as a rape, but then he's into it. <laughs> he's into that. it. <laughs> Jack goes to Lydia's work and he convinces her by embodying Tuck. This is another part of Jack embodying the tropes of Tuck and he does it almost better than Tuck would have done. Tuck has started to doubt Jack, but almost from this point onwards, he's constantly surprising Tuck. Yeah, just in the way that he's able to tell Lydia to shut up and try and take command of it. They continue to talk in this restaurant. There's this back and forth between them in terms of who can dominate the conversation. And it gets to the point where Jack has almost had enough of this and he goes to the toilet. And there's this <laughs> brilliant, brilliant scene where... He's talking to Tuck whilst having a pee and uh, the guy that comes out of the cubicle and he utters the famous line, play with it, but don't talk to it. <laughs> play with it, but don't talk to it. <laughs> and he's looking at him talking about size. Yeah. Size is okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of this restaurant scene, Jack is intercepted by Mr. Igo and there's a standoff involving a taser. Meg Ryan accidentally shoots Jack with a taser. Uh, electrocuting both old. himself and, yeah. the po- and the pod <laughs> quite violently as well. Yeah. Mr. Igo escapes in a refrigerated van because his, uh, this is another thing where Mr. Igo's character starts uh, being deconstructed. His car gets towed away <laughs> rather comically. <laughs> so he ends up having to escape in another vehicle, which is a refrigerated van. And Mr. Igo drives Jack to the edge of Golden Gate Park to meet a character called Victor Scrimshaw. Yeah, this is the first time we see Victor, yeah, he, isn't it? Yeah, he's a villain that enters late on in proceedings. I think we may have heard his voice at one point. Mm. He's been alluded to at least yeah. once. And he's played by Kevin McCarthy. He's probably best known for playing the lead in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes, who he's continued to play for at least three or four films. And this leads into a very bizarre sequence where Scrimshaw is talking to Jack inside the refrigerated vehicle and talks about all manner of things that don't make any sense whatsoever. No, I tried listening to it, actually, this time around, and <laughs> I, was, I was making a conscious effort because I remembered that this is the point where Tuck Pendleton gives a monologue, and whatever Victor's saying just goes out of the mix. But I made a conscious effort to listen to what he was saying this time because I was actually thinking, is this something they would script or not? Or, no, like- this is something they actually made up on the spot. Really? Jeffrey Baum wrote on the set and gave him on a piece of paper. So that's why it's only in the long shots, because they lost that bit of paper, so they couldn't do any more dubbing to oh, have it on right. there. So that's why it's kind of in the background. But they needed something on set for him to say whilst Tuck was going through his speech. They wanted to basically illustrate how much of a nutcase this character was. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, because that dialogue is just very nutty. Following on again from last time, we get this movie cliche of characters wearing headphones, and uh, Mr. Igo, again deconstructing his character, is wearing a pair of very gaudy 80s-looking headphones, yeah. having his Walkman on, jollily listening to his music. Which is very loud death metal. Yeah. <laughs> Following this bizarre talk, Tuck eggs on Jack to escape through the van's doors. It's built up as this moment where he's going to 
burst through the doors and hit the ground running and disappear down the road. Yeah. And instead, he bursts out the doors, realises that Van is moving too fast, <laughs> clings on for dear life and finds himself <laughs> swinging about the back of the van. And there's some absolutely brilliant action in this sequence. It's fantastic and some brilliant stunt work as well. Involving the actors themselves. Yeah. There are doubles in this sequence, but there's several sections where it's clearly the actors present. And they are moving at speed as well. You know, there's always going to be an element of camera trickery going on. Perhaps it'll be a low shot pointing up where you don't really get to see the ground moving, but they actually do show a few wide shots where you get to see the van moving at speed. And you can tell it is the actors. There's a great shot where, because Lydia is following the van behind so the idea is that Jack is going to transfer himself onto Lydia's car. And there's a point where he's half on Lydia's car, half still on the van, and a bike actually runs through the bottom, through his legs. <laughs> yeah, just narrowly missing his bits and bobs. There are bars running up Martin Short's legs that are connecting the two vehicles together. So it means that they're both running in tandem and they can't veer off from each other. Oh. So he's basically being held in place by these bars that is so clever again really low tech but it works really really well and these days it would obviously be done in a studio surrounded on by green screen, screen and it would look crap it would look <laughs> awful <laughs> it'd have some peter jackson sweeping shot from so just tonight to all those big hollywood blockbuster directors out there keep it simple yep I mean, this is just one more reason why I love films like Inner Space is that they are so full of interesting trivia bits and the ways in which the special effects are achieved and the performances are achieved are just endlessly interesting. And there's so much you can learn by looking at these types of films. After this car chase sequence, Lydia and Jack go back to infiltrate the cowboy and get back onto that trail. But meanwhile... Scrimshaw calls Dr. Kanker, and there's two very bizarre elements back-to-back -back in this sequence. So you've got Scrimshaw in this pink-lit warehouse with this very fluffy white dog on this see-through glass table. He's on the phone to Dr. Kanker, who's in bed, but afterwards it pulls back, and you can see the full view of this room that Scrimshaw is in, and it's a completely empty warehouse and literally just in the corner of this warehouse where we've previously been watching this pinkly lit scene, it's just a little <laughs> corner. Everything else is desolate and run down and, and it's just this little corner of the room that's been kitted out, almost like a movie set. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really is. It's a great little visual Just gag. to show how bizarre everything is. It's almost like a joke at set design in yeah, itself. Yeah, it's, it's almost like breaking the fourth wall yeah. in, in a sense. And then... The joke's not done. Yeah. The joke is not <laughs> Immediately done. Immediately after this sequence, we cut back to Dr. Kanka, who's in the bed. We pull back and Mr. Igo is there and he's casually fitting a dildo attachment to his mechanical arm. Clearly in frame as in well. Frame. It's, it's not hidden. You do get to see it for a good couple of seconds. Yeah. Joe Dante said, this is not a moment they show on television that much. <laughs> I don't even know how that scene is still in the film, to be honest, because it's one of those things that I could just see studio guys going, whoa, family film. And it's a scene, honestly, that has passed me by so many times. I was I, I, I was <laughs> such a naive child until now. And it's because it, of you still that shit. Yeah. <laughs> in their pursuit of the cowboy, they rendezvous back at the hotel, and this is another section where Jack starts to transform into Tuck. He starts wearing his clothes. Mm-hmm. 
And this is also where Jack starts to have things that he can teach Tuck about how he treats Lydia. Yeah, he starts to come to the conclusion that Lydia is far better deserving than to end up with somebody like Tuck Pendleton, who is a bit of a dog, really. They follow the cowboy to this Inferno Club, which is the part of the film that really dates it the most. It's uh, a typical 80s movie club, complete with that kind of music that was around at the time. I think this is... um, I did write it down which song this is. Yeah, but just to give you, listener, an idea of just how 80s this music is, we are going to play a clip right now. What a wonderful slice of 80s nostalgia there. <laughs> and uh, this guy who wrote this song, he's called Narada Michael Walden. And uh, he's responsible for a lot of hit songs in the 80s. If you love that song from Mannequin, <laughs> nothing's gonna stop us now. He's responsible for that. Really? And he's also responsible for the theme tune to License to Kill featuring Gladys Knight. He's had a very interesting life. He used to be the drummer for the Mahavishnu Orchestra and the Weather Report. So he's a very accomplished musician, but then he's become involved in all these 80s hit factory songs. So he'll actually state on his website he's had 57 number one hits. I had no idea who the guy was. They're at the club and Lydia's getting close to the cowboy in some great non-choreographed dancing apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and Jack meets Wendy again, who's been transformed into this... Almost feels like Leah Thompson out of How the Duck. Yes, uh, absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, feels like that. She's surprised that Jack is here, and uh, in she all, can in see the change clothes. in him. She's fallen for the Tuck Pendleton version of Jack Potter. Yeah, and there's some great lines from her as well about uh, life sucking and the fact that yeah. she's slept with everyone else in the supermarket apart from him, even though he's the only one that she finds vaguely attractive. And that's, yeah. <laughs> Cowboy takes Lydia back to the hotel and Jack pursues. It's another steady transformation that ramps up even more when Jack has to break into the cowboy's room and yeah. Tuck really eggs him on into breaking down the door and he does with ease i do love the fact that even in the build-up into being this macho character he's still himself because he can't find the right door he walks up to the wrong door almost kicks it through tuck stops him just in time (laughs) he turns to the next door he sees it's a fire exit yeah and then he finally finds the cowboy's door so even though he kicks it down with ease he does it in a very jack putter type of way yeah he breaks down the cowboy's door and he utters this line i can't remember it's like oh yeah it's almost in a way that he's implying the more the merrier yeah you know it's like the cowboy yeah the cowboy (laughs) swings both ways my friend Yeah, and he's just standing there in his leather underpants. And his cowboy hat on. Yeah. And then just gets to the point where Tuck does just clocking one, and he does, he's literally knocks the guy out. And all the while, he's expecting Lydia to be in the room with the cowboy. Yeah. And it turns out that, no, actually, she's in the room next door. She yeah. decided to go home. <laughs> she's actually quite capable herself. She decided, no, you know what? I don't have to sleep with this guy to get the information that we need. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go home. Yeah. 
So they knock the cowboy out and they lay him in the bath. This is the most Looney Tunes part this of is the, the entire film. Yeah, this, this is where they section go is into it. the most fantasy elements of and the film. I love it. Yeah. I really love it. It kind of never stops being this way. It's built up to being this type of film. Yeah. It slowly drew you in. Yeah. I think they get to this point where it's so wacky now that you'll buy it. You're along for the ride. You're already locked in. So this is the part where there is an element in the pod where, for unbeknown reasons, the <laughs> pod can manipulate Jack's body into looking like the cowboy. Yeah. It can scan the cowboy's face and then manipulate his, his muscles. muscles to take it on a different form. Yeah. Why would they need that for a fucking <laughs> rabbit? <laughs> I don't know, but is there? Uh... <laughs> you know what? That technology. Why is nobody trying to steal that technology? <laughs> oh, I don't know. This whole technique of how Jack changes his face is a really simple technique. As I mentioned before, Rob Bottin was involved in the making of this film and he came up with two straightforward methods of creating this transformation we only see the first one in this first section you see the second part of it in when he transforms back later on in the film but the first section is compressed air shot into the guy's mouths and it looks so good and so funny and it's all done with the editing as well because there's not much actual transformation it's all done in reaction shots especially robert picardo yeah reacting to it which is hilarious you can see why they picked rob botine for this particular special effect because it is playing with many body horror elements that you do expect to see in a Rob Bottin special effect. Yeah. The next shot after this it's remarkable is a very, very clever scene, which is all done in one shot and actually features two Robert Picardos and they don't cut away. It's all in camera. It's very low tech how they do this. So the idea is that Jack in his cowboy face comes out of the bathroom, presents himself to Lydia. She doesn't know what the hell is going on. And he tries to explain to her that he's Jack. He's still got Jack's voice. Yeah, and then she goes into the bathroom and finds the real cowboy is lying still in the bath. But it's all done in one shot. So what happens is the camera pulls in on Jack, open the door out of the bathroom. He follows around. He talks to Lydia. He goes out of shot for one second. Then there's a double that comes into the same... I think it's Martin Short. Robert Picardo runs around the back of the camera, goes into the bathroom set. Strips naked. Strips naked lies in the bath and then there's actually a false wall in the bathroom where the the wall lifts up the makeup lady changes his wig and then he just lies in the bath by the time meg ryan gets in there he's all kitted out as the cowboy which is only really about 10 15 seconds yeah if that i think it took about 20 takes to get right the plan that both lydia and jack putter have decided to go with at this point is obviously they're taking on the guise of the cowboy in order to gain these microchips from the criminals mm. so this meeting takes place and it's really awkward <laughs> and jack putter we know doesn't fit the guise of the cowboy whatsoever yeah other than the fact that he's wearing the guy's face and they did the scene two ways they actually did it where Martin Short was dubbing Robert Picardo. Apparently that didn't work so well because it, it looked very obvious that it was him and yeah. he would have been found out. And also, a lot of Robert Picardo's performances, nuances were lost when they redubbed the part. So, for the large part of the scene, it's just Robert Picardo doing a really bad version of the accent he's already been doing. And it's great. It's, <laughs> it's really great. I always forget how much Robert Picardo is in this film. Yeah. Because... He's playing two different characters. Yeah. 
a lot of this is ad-libbed as well, especially the line where they comment about his hair. This is a complete ad-lib where he talks about, oh, and your hair's changed, cowboy. And he's like, oh, I had it done. Uh, <laughs> Clint Eastwood style. You know, the outlaw looks- Josie Wales. Great <laughs> flick. <laughs> it looks nothing like Clint Eastwood either. Even Josie Wales. It looks nothing like him, but I love it. I do love that line. And apparently a studio guy, when watching the film, went, is this funny? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, they know nothing. It's one of my favourite bits of the whole film. (laughs) (laughs) This thing goes all wrong. His metal tooth, which they've used a bit of foil, falls out. And this is where Scrimshaw starts to doubt. Yeah, they're they're already a a little bit suspicious, but now they truly are. Yeah. (laughs) And they decide that the best way that they're going to find out if it is the cowboy or not is through a pain test. Yeah, because apparently goes, the cowboy has a high th- pain threshold. Has the cowboy ever told you of his tolerance for extreme pain? <laughs> <laughs> it scares Jack Putter to the point that he transforms yeah, himself it, back. It, Tuck Pendleton loses his control over Jack completely. And so Jack begins to transform back. And I love about this scene that Victor Scrimshaw instantly thinks that it's actually the cowboy using a new trick to show him how angry he is. (laughs) And then at one point, the compressed air face is replaced with a prosthetic head, which has been warped in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it's moving very fast in an almost Tasmanian devil-type world. Yeah. You do get glimpses of the thing-type transformation going on, where two faces are splitting and it's becoming something else. And it's hilarious. It is the thing. It's John Carpenter played for laughs. Yeah. There is a cast of Robert Picardo's head in the thing somewhere that he used. (laughs) But yeah, after this spectacular effect is over, it's revealed that the cowboy is in fact Jack Putter. And Jack and Lydia, they get locked up. And Lydia just really wants to know what the hell is going on because she's seen all this stuff happen, and she's had no explanation for it up to this point. But she thinks Tuck has actually been kidnapped and is being held hostage somewhere. Mm. She has no idea that he is, in fact, inside Jack Potter. And it's only because Tuck translates to Jack. He basically apologises to Lydia for being an idiot that day when she leaves. It's this moment when she realises that Tuck is actually truly, genuinely inside Jack. Yeah. And this is one of those moments as well where once more Tuck Pendleton is learning from Jack that he does start to realise that the way that he's been treating Lydia has been the wrong way. Yeah. So that's why he apologises. At this point, you really do see the growth of these two characters into Mm. better people, better versions of themselves. Jack kisses Lydia and Tuck's pod accidentally gets transported via their saliva into Lydia's body. And they get taken back to the villain's lab, which is a much more clean, high-tech version of the Vectorscope lab. So these guys have got a lot more money. But none of the charm. All the humanity is lost. It's another great touch. It works on two different levels. And all the assistants all look like male models. Plenty more eye candy for the ladies as well. Of course, there's so much to enjoy for ladies in this film. Their plan is, even though they don't know that Tucker's actually been moved to Lydia's body, they're going to inject Mr. Igo into Jack in order to destroy Tuck and get the second ship. They implant Mr. Igo into this terrifying contraption. He looks like a Swiss army knife. And while this is going on, the guard that's guarding Lydia accidentally tases himself. <laughs> so 
she's able to escape. And the guard himself, he's actually another macho character in terms of physique. But Joe Dante, again, just completely deconstructs that. Mm. He is a fool. He manages to tase himself and knock himself out. And two more times in the film, we see that he faints. He's a complete dumbass, and he also has a weak stomach. He is not a macho man whatsoever, but because he has his physique, Mm. everybody thinks that he's going to be the really tough bad guy. (laughs) Yeah. Lydia holds the lab up, and she orders everybody into the miniaturizer. And then they proceed to miniaturize all the villains. So from this point on in the rest of the film, all of the villains are now half size, which is another unexpected (laughs) element. They don't return back to full size. They stay that size for the rest of the film. This film is all about deconstructing cliched elements. Yeah. All the villains are deconstructed to the point where they're ridiculous. Yeah, they have become absurd versions of themselves. Whereas all the hero characters are becoming better versions of themselves. Yeah. And whilst all this is going on, Tuck doesn't realise that he's inside Lydia and he's floating about and then all of a sudden comes across something else inside this body that he's not seen before and it's actually a baby. So he realises that Lydia's pregnant with his baby, which is the reason why she probably left in the first place. Yeah, it's a really nice moment. Jack and Lydia escape the lab and in order to make Lydia realise that Tuck is actually inside her, he plays Sam Cooke really loud throughout her body so she can hear him. It's another setup and payoff that the film is just completely full of. We get another further transformation moment where Jack doesn't realise that Tuck is no longer inside his body, but he still has that bravado. He has that confidence yes. because he thinks Tuck is guiding him. It's that moment where a character's been given magic shoes that are going to make him run fast. And he's about to compete in a marathon. And he does, he does, he competes in a marathon and he runs. And then the guy says to him, they weren't magic shoes at all. Yeah. It was inside yeah. you all along. And that's what it's absolutely playing on. Yeah. It's, it comes off really well. When he gets confronted by the villain on the stairs and he kicks him and then he gets back up again. And then Lydia realizes that Tuck's inside her and he's like, oh shit. And you almost think that he's going to regress back to his original yeah. state. You think he, he already has. Yeah. But he doesn't. He just puts it on and he just kicks the hell out of that guy and he falls yeah. right back down the stairs again and they just march on. And again, he does it in a way that is very Jack Putter-like and not Tuck Pendleton. He does it in a way yeah. that he still retains his character. And meanwhile, the police uncover the miniaturizer and the miniaturized villains escape. They all end up in the same car. Yeah. And so Jack and Lydia escape in this car, which also happens to have Scrimshaw and Dr. Kanker in the back as miniaturized versions of themselves. And it's at that point Lydia realizes that the moment that Tuck Pendleton was transferred into her body was, in fact, during the kissing scene earlier on in the film. Mm. So she deduces that the only way to get Tuck back into Jack is to kiss again. Yeah, so they kiss again, and yeah, Tuck goes back into Jack. But... There's something waiting for him. There's a that little Swiss army knife that is Mr. Igor waiting for him. And Jack has to warn Tuck that this has happened in the meantime. So during this whole sequence, we really get two chases going this on. This is really that. frenetic, this part, because yeah. Yeah, you've got the chase sequence with the miniaturized villains in the car, and then you've got the attack of Mr. Igor on Tuck's pod. And it's a really elaborate special effects sequence as well. 
and it looks great. And it's almost slightly hokey, but in such a way that it is really funny. It's funny and also kind of scary. I remember when I was a kid, Mr. Igol terrified me Yeah, during this scene. He looks like he's having too much fun trying to kill <laughs> Tuck Pendleton. And it's literally all over the place. In a way, it feels very modern in how it's all been edited together. I, I imagine that there's not that many films made at the time that would have been cut this fast. Yeah. And there's a lot of different stunt set pieces involving the car, inside the car where there's a very ingenious forced perspective set and there's things involving miniaturized hands, double-sized heads and really jumping around all these It's all very Lord of the Rings, isn't it's, it? Literally, it, this is the first time really that they've done this kind of thing. In many ways though, Joe Dante's always been ahead of his time. Yeah. So it's such a shame to see other filmmakers these days that are inspired by him do so well while he is relegated to bargain bin fodder. Yeah. During this sequence with Mr. Rygo and Tuck's pod, they fall into the stomach. And at one point, Tuck manages to damage Mr. Rygo's suit. So he ejects his suit and has a jetpack on. Yeah. <laughs> which is another one of those cartoony moments. Now he's completely open to the elements inside yeah. Jack's body, though. And it's a great moment where Jack's nervousness has to come back into play. You know, Jack has to retain that little bit of of his past self yeah. in order for Tuck to survive, really. Just before this sequence, they crash the car into the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, Jack and Lydia escape. They end up travelling back to Vectorscope in order to re-enlarge the pod. And whilst this is going on, Jack is hyperventilating in the car and the battle is still going on. And they, yeah, they've slipped into the stomach. And so... Mr. Igo is drilling into the pod and Tuck's radioing to Jack to build up some stomach acid. And what follows is a rather gruey sequence, <laughs> actually, <laughs> in which both Tuck Pendleton and Mr. Igo fall into the stomach acid that's been accumulated, including what is a burst ulcer as well, in a nice little bloody moment. Yeah. And... Mr. Igor gives out a tremendous scream that has always, always been in my mind since being a kid. I always think of it as being, oh, that was a great scream, as he, they plummet into the stomach acid. And it's really well done. I actually did pause that shot. Again, it's one of those shots where you just can't see the join of him falling into the stomach acid, even though it's an insert. Uh, it's so seamless. Yeah, it really is. You cannot see the join. We get that line of, you just digested the bad guy. <laughs> And it's very brewy because it cuts back and you just end up seeing Igo's skeleton complete with mechanical mm. arm attached and to it. And we find out that he isn't the Terminator. No. He's been completely deconstructed. He isn't the Terminator that he thinks he is. He's just a guy that's now been digested. It's a great denouncement for a really great villain. Mm. And <laughs> we cut back. Scrimshaw and Dr. Kanka are trying to... The cowboy. The ca- yeah, they're phoning the cowboy. There's this massive double-sized phone booth that they've had to construct <laughs> in order to get them in the same shot as it and they've had to like stand on top of each other in order to answer the phone <laughs> it's all done I, in forced perspective i really wish i had some behind the scenes photography of that being shot yeah. <laughs> just, just so i could really get a gist of how big that set is the heroes race back to vectorscape once again tuck pendleton's oxygen is running out he's only on the like the last couple of percent and he's waiting in the lungs to be retrieved yeah and they use uh, hairspray, which is one of the things that Jack is allergic to in order for him to sneeze out 
tuck in another he, um, set up and pay off. Yeah, and he sneezes onto the scientist, and then they retrieve the pod from the sneeze on this guy's glasses. And we also get a replay of that gag with the um, robotic arm as it, they're putting the chips back into the machine and the, the robotic arm's taking forever so the guy has to do it himself it's almost <laughs> like why the fuck have you made this arm <laughs> that is so fucking slow <laughs> but what follows is a great gag that I had missed until now as well is they uh, boot the system and a question follows which is eat me and drink me a play on Alice in Wonderland yeah. <laughs> and Jack's first response is I know this I know this it's from the exorcist <laughs> <laughs> which are it's great obviously yeah. playing on the old um, well where Reagan's discovering herself scene yeah <laughs> I love it. It's, it's a joke that's so quick, and I'd missed it so many yeah. times. But it's another moment where Jack himself proves himself as a hero because he's the one that solves the riddle. And so they're able to solve this riddle and re-enlarge the pod. And just as a last-minute thing, you see Mr. Igo's mechanical arm that's been stuck in the pod re-emerge and clunk onto the floor, still wearing its little drill. I mean, there's this tense moment where you're wondering, has Tuck made it or hasn't he? And obviously, for this type of movie, he's made it. But... This is the first time where Dennis Quaid and Martin Short actually share the screen. Yeah. It's the very end of the film. The last they, five minutes. It's quite remarkable just what's been achieved in terms of their relationship up until this point. We get to the coda of this whole film. Yes. Yeah, this kind of springboard scene, really, which is not a springboard scene, but if this film was made today, it definitely would be a springboard into a sequel. Yeah, it's just closing the book yeah. on Jack's transformation. Yeah, That's all it's absolutely. there for. It's just to show that, wow, he is a better version of himself now. Yeah, so at the end of this film, Tuck and Lydia get married, and everybody's there at the wedding. Everybody good who's been involved in the film mm-hmm. is there. And they uh, get in the, in the wedding car, and it's revealed that the microchips are actually Tuck's cufflinks. Yeah. Which plays into another little gag that's just coming up where uh, <laughs> we suddenly realise that their um, their driver is in fact the cowboy yeah. <laughs> and hidden in a suitcase in the trunk is Victor Scrimshaw and Dr. Kanker. Yeah, and apparently Kevin McCarthy made sure that he had that bra wrapped around him. <laughs> In the, in the suitcase. And it's actually quite a complex shot because they made a an oversized suitcase, but the hand that shuts it is a real hand. So they had to time it. So when the hand closes down on the suitcase, that it's all in line with each other. And it took quite a long time to make oh, sure wow. that it... Such a small special effects gag that nobody would really think twice about. Yeah. And yet so much thought and effort and work has gone into achieving it. They drive off, but Jack realises that it's the cowboy that's driven off with them. And he takes it on himself to actually go and save Tuck and Lydia. And in this process, all the people around him, including his doctor, uh, Wendy, and Mr. Wormwood, his manager, they almost invite him back into that old world. Yeah, they're trying to pull him back into his old life. And he basically rejects all of them. Yes. He literally goes, Mr. Wormwood, thanks, but I quit. And uh, Wendy, not a chance. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he essentially drives off into the sunset on his journey to be a better person. It's Jack Putter to the rescue. And that's where the film ends. And it's it's a great film. And and Rod Stewart's singing his heart out. Oh, he is, yeah. (laughs) Twisting the night away. (laughs) 
Oh, what a song, though. What a song to end it on. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it really sets it off in a real yeah. feel-good mood. There's no way that anybody walks out of the cinema without a smile on their face after that. It's, it's a great film. So now we've got to work out why this film has been forgotten, yeah, because why, it's really lost on us. Yeah, why has this great film just not left an impact? And I guess, you know, we may find some of our answers in the facts and figures. So I'm going to now look at the critic score, the critic reception, the box office reception. And we're really going to get our teeth into these figures just to find out just why it's been forgotten. Because, mm. again, when I, I started researching the film, there isn't that much on it. There really isn't at all. There's not many facts and figures on IMDb. If you Google Inner Space, there's not that many articles written about it. Yeah, it's very, very sparse there's compared to a lot of films we've looked at. And there's plenty to talk about. Mm. There really is. There is essays that you could write about its approach to the masculine hero. And nobody really talks about it in that respect. It's always mentioned as an aside, as a smaller entry in the Joe Dante filmography. When in fact it's one of the larger entries into it's his filmography. One of his best. Yeah. And even down to the commentary, you can tell that he's still very much proud of the film. I do hope that it does at some point start to receive that kind of reappraisal it deserves in the same way that John Carpenter's The Thing did. Because yeah. I do personally think it is a classic mm. of a similar level. So yeah, moving on to the facts and the figures. So let's start with the critics. Now, if you go into Rotten Tomatoes, you'll find that the film has an 81% score, which is rather commendable. But actually, when you look at the average rating, it's 6.6 .6 out of 10, mm. which is remarkably low. Yeah. So although it's getting good reviews, it's still not getting the kind of appraisal that it should be getting. Yeah, because this film's really sort of an 8 out of 10 film. Yeah, to be honest, normally the quite solid critics, the ones that we usually go back to, like Roger Ebert and Empire, they both gave this film favourable reviews. Mm. Ebert, for instance, reviewed it at 3 out of 4, and as we mentioned earlier, he was really taken by the special effects in this film to the point that he thought it was real. And Empire still give this film a 4 out of 5 rating, which you can read the review on the Empire website, and I would recommend that you do. It's a really good, solid review. But yeah, shall we move on to IMDb? Which Yeah, IMDb's rating is 6.7 out of 10, which again is a bit of a mystery. It's so low, and I'm just wondering if this is because the film hasn't been seen by that many people, perhaps, that it's being rated this low, that it doesn't have the kind of following behind it to really push those numbers up to yeah. a place that it deserves. And what are the box office figures like? Well, the film opened to $4 million, which was good enough for third place on the uh, opening weekend. And it went up against Dragnet and Spaceballs, <laughs> both of which were in their second week, so it actually lost to them. Wow. I am completely at a loss as to why it's open so low but i understand that you've actually been I doing found, some research well during listening to the commentary this is something they mentioned quite early on when they went to test the film with preview audiences the previews were really really good to the point where <laughs> the film tested so well that the studio thought oh great this film sells itself Look at these test cards, they're amazing. What we're going to do, we're going to save some money. Let's not advertise it as much. We'll just have a couple of posters, a couple of spots here and there, and we'll let the film grow through word of mouth buzz. This film has some really good posters that make you want to go and see the film. 
Yeah, they're iconic. But I imagine at the time, there just weren't enough of them. Yeah. <laughs> there weren't enough trailers out there or TV spots or anything. And they'd let the film literally go under the radar so audience didn't even know it was there. And I think that has really contributed as to why it opened so low and why it never really regained its strength afterwards. That is remarkably stupid. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a silly reason yeah. for why this film ultimately, well, kind of bombed. I think another interesting thing to look at when we're seeing how this film was marketed was to look at the trailer. And as all the listeners have heard already, the trailer's not very good. No. Uh, Even more so when you watch it visually. If you actually go on YouTube, type in In a Space trailer, you'll really see the odd shot choices they chose for this trailer. Yeah, I'm sure you can get a sense of it just through the audio, but it actually plays out like an Adam Sandler comedy. Yeah. It doesn't let on to any of the action or adventure elements that are actually in the film. It just plays it as a straight comedy. Mm, and it has that kind of John Hughes-style music Yeah, as yeah. well. I think it's actually from The Goonies, but yeah. it doesn't work. It, it doesn't work with this type of film, and it doesn't work with the imagery that we're seeing. It's being completely mismarketed. Yeah, so it's a classic case of the marketing people not knowing how to... Uh, show this film to an audience and it's a shame as well because i think if you get the marketing right for this film it succeeds that's precisely where it's yeah it's, it's a real shame because i'd imagine sitting in a theater i would have watched this trailer and gone well that looks like a dog shit film and i would have been sat next year just thinking the exact same mm. the film does show good word of mouth because even though it opened to four million it went on to make 25 million and I know that these days they say that when a film opens, in order for it to be a success, it needs to make three times as much as the weekend it opened on. In order to show good word of mouth, mm. that's the way we gauge it. It's made over five times, six times it's yeah. open on weekend. So the word of mouth's been great, but because they didn't put the marketing into it, mm. it's opened so low that too few people have seen it the information on this film is so sparse that i can't even find the budget of the film but i don't imagine it was that much outside of that maybe 15 to 20 million dollar ballpark so i don't think it really made back its money that much no they only usually want to advertise the budget of a film when it starts making its money back yeah or else people will start to judge it against its budget like so many people do now So yeah, I think we have uncovered here just a couple of reasons, and one primarily big reason why this film has failed to find its audience, but I'm still at a loss as to why the audience that has taken in this film have rated it so low, and the critics, even though they view the film positively, they review it as a minor positive. Yeah. I still have little reason why, but... For me, it's much bigger than that. It's a much better film than people are giving it credit for. And Joe Dante is a filmmaker that I think deserves more credit than he's given. Mm. And it's just a bit of a mystery as well as to why it's not had a major resurgence yet. This has never really become a cult film in that sense. It's still under the radar. It's not quite a cult film. Perhaps because it's too far in the shadows of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, And maybe, hopefully, with the success of Ant-Man, yeah. that people will start to look back at the filmmaking history of these Shrinking Man films. Yeah. And hopefully some of that attention will go to Inner Space. But I think in a way, and this is for me personally, the influence of the film has been more clearly felt in less obvious areas. And I'm referring to the Disney attraction Body Wars which is part of Wonders of Life in Epcot Center, which closed in about 2007. And this was a 
a ride that was created about a year after Inner Space came out. And it it's more on the Fantastic Voyage line of being a bit po-faced yeah. and a bit more serious. And it stars Tim Matheson in Elizabeth Shue. And it's directed by, coincidentally, Leonard Nimoy, who oh. directed Three Men and a Baby, which was the number one film of that It was year. the number one <laughs> film of 1987. That is quite an interesting connection. And mm. it's weird to think of the films that were released around the same time as Inner Space. Dragnet and Spaceballs, although Spaceballs has a cult following, it's certainly not Mel Brooks's best film. And just to give you an idea of the type of films that Inner Space was up against in 1987... It was the year that gave us the aforementioned Three Men and a Baby, which was the highest grossing film of the year, both domestically and worldwide. What a legacy. What a (laughs) legacy that film has left behind. (laughs) Fatal Attraction is another one. Beverly Hills Cop 2, Platoon, The Untouchables, Stakeout, and then much lower down the list, you have the likes of Predator, Full Metal Jacket, and Lethal Weapon. I mean, it's a really decent year, but it's It's not a vintage year. There are films there that I've mentioned that I consider classics, in my opinion, but that are largely overlooked. Yeah, but um, going back to Body Wars, that is directed by Leonard Nimoy, and the effects in the ride, which is basically a pod gets miniaturized into a human body, and there's lots of adventures that ensue within the human body. All the effects are done by ILM, and the reason they are done by ILM is because the producers had seen Inner Space and pretty much hired the same team to do those effects. And if you watch Body Wars, it's a bit of an uncanny valley situation where, wow, that looks exactly the same. The main differences they've done with that particular ride is they added uh, CGI blood cells. It was getting to the point where they were starting to add CGI elements into the films. But also, coincidentally... There's another attraction within Wonders of Life called Making of Me, and that stars Martin Short. So there's many connections between those two things, but unfortunately, that whole pavilion has been closed for quite some time now. Oh, that is such a shame. Yeah. Because at least those kind of attractions let you know that some of the people in charge really did like this film. Yeah. This is a film that's fond for many. In a way, I do hope that people do listen to this podcast and do check out Inner Space because it is one of those films that does need a bit of a resurgence and I'm kind of hoping that we're the ones to to push that. Yeah, I really do because if even one viewer watches the film based on this, I would really be over the moon with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to ask because this is part of the show, but yeah. I think it's pretty much <laughs> pretty unanimous in obvious, this case. Yeah. yeah. Andy, should Inner Space remain a forgotten film, or is it one of the best of the forgotten films? Oh, it's definitely one of the best of the forgotten films. It definitely needs a resurgence, and very, very soon. Hopefully, the Blu-ray release will ignite a resurgence of the film. Yeah, it really is a no-brainer. It deserves a place on the best of the forgotten, definitely. Inner Space is incredibly exciting. It's funny. There's really little else that I can say that I haven't said already other than that it's just a solid gold film. There is no reason why anybody listening should not watch it. No. Full stop. No. So, yeah, I think that's all we have time for today. Yeah, indeed. So join us next time when we will be looking at Guy Ritchie's Revolver, a film that I have no idea about whatsoever. And I don't think you'll know after you've watched it either. <laughs> And be sure to follow us on Twitter at B4Movies and Facebook. I've been Gareth Green. Thanks for listening. I've been Andrew Phillips. And ciao for now. Let me tell you about a place Somewhere up in New York way.